Our readings today come from 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 10 and 13, in which Nathan rebukes David. Psalm 54, 1 through 4, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him, and also Ephesians 4, 1 through 4 and 11 through 12, about unity and maturity in the body of Christ. In 2 Samuel, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king of Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. In Psalm 54, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict and justify when you judge. In Ephesians, as a prisoners for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life of worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, good to see you all here today. You know, in all of the conversations that are going on about power and privilege, we often think of those with power and privilege as people over there, the people who make the news, the ones with the really big stock portfolios. But I have, have you ever wondered where you stand in, when it comes to power and privilege? Here's a little 
privilege check based on data from 2019 and 2020 without accounting for race. And according to the data collected by the Federal Reserve, American households have a median balance, that's cash liquid assets, of $5,300 in their checking and savings accounts combined. That's from 2019. Where does that compare to yours? And when it comes to education, if you have a college degree, you are more educated than most Americans. And if you have a graduate degree, you are in the top 13% of the most educated Americans. Now here are some DC area stats. You know, the real median household income, where a household in, in DC, the average household size is two people. It doesn't have to be married, uh, just two people in the same household is $92,000. That's 50% higher than Amer the American average of uh, 65,000. And if you kind of extend the, the boundary a little further into the Washington area, that average goes up to 105,000. So if you're working here in the DMV region, you're making 50% more than the average American. And if you travel less than 34 minutes to go to work, you have a shorter commute time than most people here in DC. You're doing better than most. So if you find yourself above average with these figures, and I would encourage you to consider yourself as relatively privileged when it comes to the rest of DC, but perhaps the rest of the nation. And you might say, well, Andrew, that, that makes a lot of sense, but it's expensive here. What about debt? Okay, the average American carries $6,300 in credit card debt. That's like carrying a balance. And the average mortgage in America is $216,000, but here in DC, it's $417,000. If you owe less than $17,000 on your car, then you are doing better than most Americans. And if you carry less than $60,000, $58,000 in student debt, you are doing better than most Americans. How does that make you feel when you consider your power and your privilege? You know, my point in bringing all this up is not to guilt trip you about your finances or to depress you. It's simply to put some tangible comparisons for us to consider when we think about the privilege and the freedom and the power that we each hold. You know, these privileges and, and, and freedoms afford you time and afford you resources that allow you to influence and, and lead others. They can offer you a sense of, of power to a certain degree. Now, all these examples I've given to you all have to do with money and finances, which have a significant impact on our privilege and our influence. But privilege and power and influence aren't just measured in dollars and cents. You know, they also come with positions of influence. They may be professional, like those you have in your career, or they may be social, like in your family and your network of relationships. But whether you have a formal or informal positions of influence, the reality is that we've all call, been called to be in uh, leaders, particularly as followers of Jesus. We are called to positions of influence simply because we are in a relationship with the living God of the universe. So the question for all of us here is, what do we do with our power and with our privilege and with our influence? You know, today's lectionary text that Marjorie read for us in, uh, are in our God's Transforming Justice series, address how we use our power and our leadership and our influence. And through these three specific texts, I like to see how our power and our privilege involve a work of transformation. There's a vertical transformation, there's a horizontal transformation, and there's a multiplication, there's a multiplying of transformation. 
So let's talk about vertical transformation. In Psalm 51, we heard this psalm, which may be familiar for many of us here. It's often quoted in the, by, by, uh, f- when the da- author David uses it to express contrition for his sin. What does he say there? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You know, this psalm is attributed to David and is linked to the events of 2 Samuel, where David has committed some heinous acts that Nathan, the prophet, attempts to diplomatically point out to David. And upon being confronted by Nathan, he acknowledges, uh, uh, he, he feels conviction and he acknowledges his wrongdoing through the words of the psalm. That's not something that we all like to do, especially publicly. If you're in a position of leadership today, acknowledging wrong often can be political suicide, right? But scriptures like this psalm remind us that not acknowledging wrong has an even greater consequence. Not acknowledging wrong has a spiritual, is spiritual suicide. When we violate what we are created for and the relationships that, we are, that are intended for in, our, um, in our lives that bring flourishing, when we experience guilt and shame and ultimately being disconnected from the Creator God is what kills us psychologically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually for eternity. You know, David's contrition in, these, in this psalm sets an example for us that even those who have the most power, in this case David, and privilege and authority, they cannot escape the consequence of sin. In verses 3 and 4, David recognizes how his moral failures are at their root, a breakdown in relationship with the living God. Any act of sin is at its root, a breakdown of this vertical relationship between God and humanity. This shows up even in our view of the Ten Commandments. If you look at Commandments 2 through 10, they are all fundamentally a breakdown of Commandment number one that says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. When we fail to keep the Sabbath day holy, we think we can outwork God. When we steal and we covet, we think that God will not provide for us the way we can provide for ourselves. When we lie, we think that we have a better picture of what's going on than God does. Every breakdown in relation, every offense is ultimately a breakdown in relationship with the living God. In this sense, David's words are accurate. It is only against God that we have sinned when we violate how God has intended for us to live with ourselves and with those around us in the world. This vertical relationship must undergo a transformation in order for us to be restored to our full humanity and for us to function healthily in all of our other relationships. This transformation begins with contrition and repentance before the living God. That's how we begin to experience this transformation. The modern Western church emphasizes this approach to sin quite easily because of our highly individualized and personalized approach to our spirituality. When we experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we feel the, the burden and the guilt, 
and we want to get rid of it as, as much as possible. And so we come to God, like David does, and we ask for forgiveness. We want our consciences to be appeased and our burdens to be lifted off our shoulders. And even more, we today have something that David didn't have. We have the ability to see how our sin is addressed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, when we name our sin and when we repent and, and trust in the forgiveness secured by God for us on the cross, God's love is poured out on us as we've been singing this morning. We are restored and we are transformed. This is an incredible gift of God's grace when we come before God. This is an incredible gift that we can avail ourselves of. Jesus' righteous and perfect record, sinless record, is attributed to us so we can stand fully and rightfully in restored relationship with the living God. This is the good news of the Christian faith. But at the same time, it would seem that David's words, when he says, against you only have I sinned, God, may seem a little bit incomplete because he didn't just sin only against God. His actions were incredibly harmful to others. His sin did not only affect his vertical relationship with God, but these horizontal relationships with others around him. And it is here that the Western modern church has relied perhaps too heavily on this enlightenment thought and, and personal psychology for our personal transformation. We do that at the expense of our horizontal transformation. You know, before David ever records this psalm for us, this psalm of contrition, the second Samuel text provides the background to what's going on. There, Nathan, the prophet, tells David a parable about this rich man who, though he had a large number of cattle and sheep, he takes the only ewe lamb from the poor man in town. He takes that only lamb from this poor family, kills it, and serves it as, a, as, a, as, a, as dinner to a guest that he himself is hosting. It's not even the poor man's guest. The rich man has power and privilege and authority, and he uses it for himself at the expense of the most vulnerable person in town. What, how does David respond? He responds with an indignance and the injustice of the situation. He sees it clearly. What does he say? What's his response? Oh, wait, that's the wrong place. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man who did, uh, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Nathan tells this story to David that he, so he might see his waywardness. But clearly, self-awareness is not David's strong suit. Don't worry, I'm like that too. You know, those with privilege and power become disconnected with the reality of others. The consolidation of power and the misuse of power often leads to domination of the vulnerable. And in the telling of the story, Nathan is revealing this unjust, uh, many unjust dynamics going on. The unjust dynamics between the rich versus the poor, between those with power and those who don't have power. But between the, the intimacy between a husband and a wife versus the sexual domination of a powerful man. 
and the corruption of this power led to David's betrayal and murder of Uriah, one of his top generals. It led to his marriage with Bathsheba, likely against her will. She had no no other option but to say yes. And also the silence of all those who were conspiring, David's conspirators and those who knew what was going on in the palace but said nothing. You know, it takes a courageous and wise person to call things out in ways that people can hear. Before David sees his own uh, uh, guilt, David recognizes the injustice of what this rich man has done towards this poor man. And he says, this rich man must pay four times over for that, the value of that lamb. David recognizes that there are horizontal consequences to this rich man's offense that deserve restitution. David's sin is against the living God at its core, but the offense ripples through all these other relationships. And our Western, psychologized, individualized approach to dealing with our sin is a crucial, but it's incomplete in responding to our sin. We think that as long as we're good with God, as long as our conscience is, is clear, then all is good. But it's not. Yes, we must recognize the broken relationship between God and ourselves, and we must confess. But our sin impacts others in ways that we must also take responsibility for. You know, whether or not former presidents are legally acquitted in a hearing, whether or not Olympic gymnastics coaches are convicted of their assault, sexual abuse of their athletes, whether or not insurrectionists or those who encourage them are found guilty or not, their actions have a consequence on people around them. Their, those actions, those horizontal offenses, demand horizontal transformation. Sin committed horizontally is just as important as our sin against God. We need to seek forgiveness from others as well as from God. You know, Korean theologians offer a helpful Eastern view of the impacts of sin to complement this Western view of individualized sin. David sinned against the weak and the vulnerable. And when we sin against the weak and powerless, it causes what Korean uh, theologians called Han. It's a term for the pain and the suffering of another, often caused by your actions. Han is the extreme agony experienced by those who are sinned against. Han reminds us of the suffering that our sin causes on those around us. Korean-American theologian Won Hee and Jo uh, writes, uh, develops this idea of, of Han in her book, Heart of the Cross, and she writes this, Han reverberates in the souls of survivors of the Holocaust, Palestinians in the occupied territories, victims of racial discrimination, battered wives, victims of child molestation, the unemployed, and exploited workers. Han reverberates in all of these communities. And in our globalized economy, I would also add that Han also shows up in the exploited workers who farm the shellfish that we love to eat, shows up in those who mine the precious metals that are used for our smartphones and our electric vehicles, batteries. 
and those who farm the avocados that we love to put on our toast. Han here can also be described as brokenheartedness, the woundedness of the heart. And isn't there something about a person that loves and draws near to those who are brokenhearted? Han helps us understand that sin, not only sin, not only from the perspective of the sinner, the one who commits the sin, but those who are victims of the sin and injustice. Jae Hoon Lee is another Korean theologian and who further uh, explores this inner wounds of Han, saying, innocent suffering is one cause of Han. But once it becomes Han, it loses its innocence by becoming the source of evil that seeks revenge on other innocent victims. Han, however, can be transformed, just as one personality can be transformed into a more mature form. Han is experienced by uh, those who are on the receiving end of sin, but Han uh, reciprocates. We not only experience Han, we also perpetrate Han. And it comes out in this familiar saying in the West that says, hurt people, hurt people. But is there a way out? Our sin is not only a vertical offense before God that we need to appease in our consciences. Like David's sins, they reverberate horizontally and exponentially through generations. And to acknowledge our wrong is to acknowledge the impact our wrong has upon others and to seek ways of transforming those broken relationships. So Jesus' followers are called not only to confess before God, but to seek forgiveness of those we have wronged, to seek reconciliation, and to make reparations for impacted communities. Indeed, reparations are a thing that Jesus' followers are called to engage in and perhaps even lead in in this world. Even David himself recognized the demand of the rich man to pay back the poor man four times over what the man lost. He feels very passionate about it, but we're not actually sure if he actually does it. David does what we like to do. We like to talk the talk and make the posts on our social media, but what do we really do about it? You know, at MennoCon, the National Conference for Mennonites that I attended last month, I attended a seminar there on how Everance, the Mennonite Financial Services Organization, seeks to include socially responsible options in their investment products. They seek to help investors do social justice in their investments. So they have portfolios that address, whose priorities align with peace in Israel and Palestine. They have portfolios that uh, uh, prioritize sustainability and environmental concerns. So my question for you is, as you look at your retirement or your investment portfolio, how does your portfolio reflect your stated priorities and values? You know, whether it's leveraging the power and privilege of your investments or whether it's financially supporting the work of reparations for effective communities or committing yourself in your time and volunteering and supporting vulnerable communities. These are ways for Jesus' followers to engage in the horizontal transformation of our world and of communities and of individuals who are affected by sin and injustice. Even if you are not the direct perpetrator, God calls us to this horizontal transformation. And this leads us to the final work of transformation. Jesus calls his followers to multiply transformation. 
You know, when the Paul, us apostle Paul writes to the Ephesian church, he is addressing a very diverse and also a very divided church in Ephesus in need of change. In Ephesians 4, he addresses the leaders of the Ephesian church, those who have power, those who have authority, and he encourages them to multiply the transformation that they have experienced in Christ. You know, all followers of Christ are called to exercise leadership, whether it's in formal offices like those named here in verses 11 and 12 that say apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. But also, and here at WCF, we have this process to encourage every member, every participant to step into God's leadership call for your life. Not just because there are things that need to get done as a church community, but because WCF exists to multiply this transformative work of Jesus in the world. That's why we do what we do. That's why we call leaders into positions, whether it's formal or informal. And so here's a challenge for you. Are you going to use your privilege and your power for yourself and for your comfort or to serve the mission of Jesus? You know, in verse 13, Paul points out two specific outcomes of transformation that take place when people come in relationship with Jesus. They are to be evident in this transformational work of, of the church. One is that we reach unity. Uh, or is it in my Bible here? Yeah, yes, verse 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become, secondly, mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. These are the two outcomes of Jesus' transformative work in our lives, but also within the context of the church. We reach unity, not just in thinking, not, not in thinking, but in the knowledge of Jesus. And then we reach maturity as we look to the measure of the fullness of Christ. That's what we, we, what we exist, and that's what our goal is as we work together with all of our gifts, with all of our diversity, as we are vertically transformed in our relationship with the living God, and as we work for horizontal transformation in our immediate relationships, in our society, and in our world. The goal for Jesus' followers is to strive for this unity in faith and for this maturity in Christ-likeness. That's why the body of Christ exists. The work of justice in our world and the work of repairing these broken things is not just to repair them, but to lead God's people towards unity in faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Our work in mending and transforming the brokenhearted is to lead others and ourselves into maturity in Christ. That's why we do what we do. When we have the right goal in mind, this sets us free in many ways. First, we are free from feeling the pressure to ensure that the work of repair and transformation happen in the manner and in the timing that we expect. This means that we can work for justice and transformation with joy and with hope and with patience because we know that the work is not complete because we're doing it, but it's because God is doing it and we're just joining along. As we work 
with God, God works through us and in us. God works to make us more like Jesus in the process. And that's what ultimately gives us joy and meaning because that's what we're created for. So church, as we do this together, as we are vertically transformed, as we're horizontally transformed, may we multiply transformation for your joy, for the beauty of the church, the body of Christ, and to God's glory. Amen.